current presidential election is the dirtiest campaign of all time? Think again. In today's episode of the Thought-Provoking Podcast, we'll hear about elections in history where opponents' mothers were called prostitutes, wives died from the strain of the negative campaign, and even Abraham Lincoln got called some brutal names. And we'll hear about the last openly racist campaign in the U.S. We'll even hear about how a claim of Russian interference is not a new phenomenon. Then we'll wrap it all up by talking about how recent campaigns compare. This is Shelley Kaiser, and to inform us about all of this and more, joining me today is Dr. Kerwin Swint. Kerwin is Director of the School of Government and International Affairs and Professor of Political Science here in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University. And thank you for being with us today, Kerwin. Oh, glad to be here. My pleasure. Yeah. So I just read your book. Um, it's called Mudslingers, the Top 25 Negative Political Campaigns of All Time. And, you know, I was really surprised by number two, because we often think of negative campaigning as being kind of a recent phenomenon. But number two, dirtiest campaign in your book is Andrew Jackson versus John Quincy Adams presidential election way back in 1828. So has dirty campaigning really been going on for that long? I tell you, dirty campaigning, negative campaigning, mudslinging, it, it is as old as the United States. <laughs> from, <laughs> from the very first uh, political campaign, really 1796, uh, they started going at each other. And the 1828 campaign between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, actually there were two really bad ones, 1824-1828. Um, that is a campaign that a lot of people would put at the very top of their list. In fact, a lot of historians when you ask them, you know, what's the, the worst campaign ever? A lot of times they'll say that 1828 campaign. Hmm. So, so what made it so bad? What, what did Jackson and Adams do to each other? There was such personal animosity and it really grew out of uh, the 1824 election, which came to be called the corrupt bargain when John Quincy Adams and, and others sort of stole the election. They conspired to steal the election from Andrew Jackson in the electoral college and, and that just worsened the rivalries and the bitterness and the vitriol. And so in 1828, uh, particularly the Adams forces, they called Andrew Jackson every name in the book uh, publicly. You know, they would publish leaflets and, and these handbills and newspapers and call him a murderer, uh, you know, talk about his mother being a, a prostitute brought over by, by British troops. Oh, <laughs> it was wow. really, really dirty. Yeah, it's one of those things that is historically famous. So how did the steal the election, as you just mentioned, how did that happen? That What, what was involved? There was a deal made uh, by the Adams campaign and the voters in the Electoral College uh, to, to change votes. And, and he sort of made a deal behind the scenes that sealed the deal for Adams and, uh, and Jackson and the, the, the Jacksonian forces felt really, really burned. A little bit like uh, Bernie Sanders in 2016, you know, when, <laughs> when the Democratic National Committee seemed to conspire against him. It was sort of that same kind of thing. Okay, interesting. And I know um, also some of the, the negativity between them, it was really about two different worldviews, right? One was a kind of the rugged frontiers man. One was political aristocracy. Did that cause problems also? Yeah, it was a, a big part of the rivalry. It was sort of a clash of civilizations because 
Adams represented the political aristocracy, the landowners, the, the elites, uh, the business owning class, whereas Jackson was more of a populist and he was more of a prairie politician. Um, he, he represented what he called the common man, common person. Um, and he thought that there should not be this permanent political class, you know, that government service should be uh, volunteer and there should be a rotation in place. He, he would very much be in favor of what we call term limits. Term limits, yeah. yeah. Did, yeah. Were there term limits back then? No, no, not at all. No. But there was more of an expectation though, uh, at that time that you go and serve for a few years and then you go back home. Um, you know, and so that, that was more of a custom then than it has been in the 20th and 21st century. So they were also pretty rough on Jackson's wife, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they uh, called her a bigamist because she had been previously married, and uh, there was some dispute over where the uh, whether the divorce decree was valid or not, or, or whether it was done after the fact after her second marriage. Um, historians, best they can tell, believe that it was done appropriately, but. The, uh, the, the Adams forces took that as an opportunity to attack and smear, uh, smear the poor guy's wife <laughs> in yeah. a really nasty way. That must have been brutal for her. Oh, it, it, it actually drove her to the grave. Oh, uh, wow. She, uh, she died after the election of 1828, before uh, Jackson was inaugurated. Uh, she had a heart condition and she uh, was sick during the campaign. And of course, Jackson always attributed it to the stress and the heartbreak of all these attacks against her. And uh, he wore yeah. a black armband at his inauguration. Wow, so yeah. somebody even died, it was so nasty. It was an actual <laughs> body count from a campaign. Oh, <laughs> that's brutal. And and you know, one, th one thing that really fascinated me was an element of negativity involved the Russians. And that made me think of today. I'm like, it's still popping up back in 1800s and still popping up today. So it's an old story. That? <laughs> yeah. But um, so they were saying something about Jackson doing something for the czar. Yeah. I mean, you know, they threw everything they could think of into the, the anti-Jackson pot. And he was supposed to be making these behind the scenes deals with the czar of Russia. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Everything always new again. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. One of the giants of American history, Abraham Lincoln, involved in a dirty campaign where they were certain he would lose? Say it isn't so. Find out about that campaign and how a battle in Georgia led to his victory. Back in just a minute. This is Shelley Kaiser. I'm the host of the thought-provoking podcast and also communications manager for the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. Kennesaw State is the third largest university in the state and a Carnegie-designated R2 doctoral research institution, placing it among an elite group of only 6% of U.S. colleges and universities with either an R1 or R2 status. It's also one of the 50 largest public institutions in the country. The College of Humanities and Social Sciences is the largest college at KSU, with over 400 faculty members and over 7,000 students. It houses 11 departments and schools with more than 80 programs of study. Our show features the amazing researchers in our college and their amazing and thought-provoking research. Okay, so another 
um, surprising entry for me was number four, Abraham Lincoln versus George McClellan, 1864. Um, you don't think of anything contentious. We think of Abraham Lincoln as this wonderful, you know, figure in American history. So what made this election so contentious? You know, it's amazing. You're right that we think of everything associated with Abraham Lincoln as being, you know, majestic and wonderful and, and great. And, and most of it was, but uh, up until September of 1864, uh, he was having a hard time. I mean, he was uh, projected to lose in 1864, mainly because of the split during the Civil War. And the war wasn't going very well uh, early in 1864. And so the Democrats were, were running all these different kinds of smear campaigns against Lincoln. There were uh, a ton of anti-Lincoln editorials and cartoons. And they called him every name in the book, from an ape to a baboon to a monster. Um, and, and so he was, uh, he was in pretty bad shape. And really what turned it around for Lincoln was, well, one thing, the Democrats really couldn't get their act together behind a really effective candidate. They finally settled on the former General McClellan, you know, uh, who, who was uh, one of the first uh, main commanders of the U.S. Army during the Civil War. And he was very anti-Lincoln. Um, but what really turned it around was uh, the Battle of Atlanta, um, mm -hmm. which we're really familiar with here in, in Georgia. Um, the, the Georgia campaign uh, broke the back of the Confederacy late in 1864, um, and that enabled Lincoln and his supporters to uh, maintain that things were on track, uh, they were coming back, things were going to be great. Um, and so that uh, that enabled him to really cruise to victory in that election. Yeah. So the war helped first hurt him and then yep. kind of helped him towards the end. It was all based on that. I thought that, you know, you think of, as I said, Abraham Lincoln as this wonderful figure in history and they called him ignoramus Abe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a third rate backwards lawyer and a big joke. <laughs> it seems shocking to us today to think yeah. of somebody well, calling you know, Abraham Lincoln. Politics is politics. And every election uh, really throughout our history has featured uh, this name calling and these personal attacks and the, these really bad smears because uh, winning is everything. Yeah. 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 And I, I thought that they even were going to have somebody run against the president from their own party. Um, Salmon Chase, wasn't that who was going to run against him? Yeah, there were actually a couple of possible stand-ins. That's because things were going so bad that the Republicans were getting really nervous about Lincoln's chances. And so um, the Republican Party had divisions, too. And, and there were several different, uh, you know, parts of the party who said, you know, we need to do something because Lincoln's going to lose. <laughs> so, mm. so they were they were scrambling around trying to find some kind of alternative. Yeah. And I also thought it was interesting. They came up with a really brutal claim that he had someone singing to him on the battlefield. Yeah, that was uh, that was taken wildly out of context um, after uh, I think it was the Battle of Gettysburg um, when all the, you know, the bodies were laying around the, uh, the the Democrat campaign said that Lincoln asked the driver to sing a cheery song as they drove through looking at the bodies. Um, and it was something Lincoln had said um, that day that was just taken out of context. I mean, it was completely, it was basically a lie. You know, they made it seem like he was being heartless and cold. Yeah, that makes him sound brutal, right? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to believe that politicians would tell a lie, I know, but. 
Oh, shocking <laughs> for, to be sure. <laughs> um, there was even a racial component, right, to um, this election. Right. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the Civil War brought up uh, tons of uh, charges, countercharges um, about uh, not only Lincoln, but really everybody involved in 1816, 1864. And there were charges of, of Lincoln supporting, um, you know, bringing mulattoes into the country, having them, uh, you know, populate part of the North as well as part of the South. Um, you know, just some really vile charges that were meant to stir up racial animosity. And guess oh, what? It worked. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> racial think... animosity. Oh, that's too bad. So um, in the end, the tide changed towards Lincoln because of the war. So how'd the final vote come out in that? Well, it turned out he won pretty easily. Uh, okay. By the time the election came around, uh, the other side had splintered so badly and, and foundered so badly in their campaign um, that, you know, Lincoln really had no problem winning in the end. Yeah. Lucky for the country. Yeah, yeah. Who <laughs> I don't know that George McClellan could have been as uh, exciting of a, of a historical fig figure as Abraham Lincoln has turned out to be. I don't think it would have gone well. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Richard Nixon, a Republican, donates to the campaign of a Democrat? Find out how that came about in the last openly racist campaign in America. And you might be thinking that we're in the very worst era of negative campaigning. You'll want to hear what's next as we discuss how recent presidential campaigns fare on the list of the dirtiest campaigns in history. How did a decision by a youth football organization lead to claims that they are weakening American society and emasculating American males? Join us next month to find out. We'll be talking to David Casillo, Assistant Professor of Communication here at Kennesaw State University, about his research on framing in sports media. We'll discover whether the media shows support for athletes or organizations that make choices to protect health, or whether they frame it as just another case of creating a sissy generation, as one social media user claimed. Then we'll examine how the media coverage of mental health problems in athletes can promote or discourage certain types of activism. And we'll look at the media portrayal of LeBron James activism and its implications for black athletes who want to promote change. So your number one ranked campaign in your book is not a presidential election. It had to do with the election for governor in the, our neighboring state of Alabama. So it was George Wallace versus Albert Brewer back in 1970, so a little closer to today. So what's the backstory on how this election came about? Right. So out of the 25 examples in the book, the top 25, 14 of them are presidential elections. 11 of them are other kinds of elections like governors, U.S. Senate, U.S. House elections. Um, and so the, the George Wallace election of 1970 is a, a, a horrible example. I almost said great example, but a horrible example, really. Great um, example of horribleness. Horribleness. I mean, the, the, the vitriol, the, the nastiness, the name calling, the dirty tricks behind the scenes. Um, George Wallace uh, was running against who at the time was the current governor, Albert Brewer, in 1970 for the Democratic nomination to run for governor. And this was a runoff campaign. Now, George Wallace had been governor previously. His wife, Lurleen, was governor after him. Lurleen died in office. And the lieutenant governor, Al Brewer, 
became governor. Uh, and so Wallace was challenging Brewer for the nomination. And they had been allies. They were both Democrats. Remember, at the time, there were no Republicans in Alabama. <laughs> As in Georgia, it was all, it was all a Democratic-run uh, state. Um, they had been allies. They had known each other. But Wallace, running for the governorship, pulled out all of the stops and attacked Brewer mercilessly, called him names, called him a sissy, called him a mama's boy. Um, and then he, you know, Wallace at the time was known for this racial vitriol and, and Alabama at the time was the leading example of segregation, a, a very divided society. Um, and uh, he was uh, unfortunately a master at racial politics. And he was known for using race and racism to win votes, scare white voters. And he used that tactic against Al Brewer, uh, saying that he was soft on the races, that he would be too inclined to accept racial integration, uh, that he wasn't tough enough against the black vote and, and those kinds of interests. Uh, he went so far as to uh, phony up these pictures of Al Brewer appearing with uh, uh, African-American entertainers at the time. Uh, he even phoned a picture and started a rumor about Al Brewer's college-age daughter dating a black man in college. You know, um, it was the, the links they went to, uh, and again, pamphlets, newsletters, taking a, a racist angle. Um, I even interviewed people who remember that campaign that said that Wallace in personal campaign appearances would use the N-word um, during the rally, you know, during a, a personal appearance. Uh, so co completely unafraid of any kind of backlash or, or anything like that. So I made that campaign number one uh, because of its relative recentness. It was only 1970, you know, which is in my lifetime compared to say 1828 or, or 1864. Um, and it was just remembered really as one of the last openly racist campaigns for major office in America. And you know what's funny? I thought the people in Alabama were gonna be mad at me, you know, for talking about yeah, <laughs> talking the about most that. negative campaign of all time. Yeah. Uh, they actually uh, enjoyed the attention, you know? And, and, and I forgot that uh, Alabama likes to be number one. <laughs> Whether question. it's football or <laughs> right. uh, you know, negative politics, uh, but it got a lot of attention in Alabama, and, and most people there said, "Yeah, I, I think that probably was the most negative campaign of all time." I remember it well. They recognized it. Yeah, I thought yep. um, one of the things Wallace said: if Brewer won, there would be a spotted alliance of blacks and sissy bridges from Harvard who spent most of their time in the country club drinking tea with their fingers stuck up. <laughs> so again, it, it's kind of a clash of ideology even here. Yeah, yeah, he had a way with words. Uh, or, but yeah, uh, so, so Brewer uh, had this reputation as, you know, someone very well-educated, someone very well-read, sophisticated. You know, he was comfortable on the cocktail circuit, that sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, Wallace was making this class argument you know, that Alabama needs a fighter. Alabama needs somebody who knows what the deal is. And, and Brewer is too out of touch. He's too much of an elite. You know, he's going to hobnob with those those college administrators, you know, and that sort of thing. And so Brewer did well in the runoff election in the cities and uh, on college campuses and that kind of thing. And, and Wallace cleaned up everywhere else. 
Now, this was really about um, Wallace wanting to run for president, wasn't it? Was this a, a setup for that kind of a thing? It seems like it. I mean, he needed the office of governor to be able to launch uh, a, a presidential campaign in 1972. Wallace had run for president in 1968 as an independent and, and didn't get very far. Uh, and so he, he believed that he needed um, a, a, a major party nomination. So he wanted to run as a Democrat. And he thought he needed the office of governor to have that national platform to be able to raise money and get the name identification out there. Um, and I think in his mind also developed this real uh, racial uh, animosity that would that he thought would propel him to the White House. Hmm. You know, when you talk about raising money, I thought another interesting thing is that President Nixon, who's a Republican, gave money to Brewer, a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, and, uh, and that was a secret. That was, was like a, a secret slush fund, uh, you know, because uh, Nixon uh, didn't want to have to deal with Wallace in 72. And so he was hoping Brewer would beat him. That's where that came from. Uh, that was interesting. Yeah. Um, so coming down to our day. So do you think if you were to redo this book today, would our current election fall somewhere in those top 25? You bet. You bet. I, I wrote this book in uh, 2006, and the paperback version came out in 2008, which was uh, 2008 was the year of Obama and McCain. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was that every time we have a presidential election, people always seem to think, well, this is the most negative campaign I think we've ever had, right? You always hear Definitely. that, you know, see that printed. And it's almost never true uh, because you know, historians and, you know, books like this prove really that, well, that the worst campaigns really were in the 1800s, you know, much more negative than, you know, we uh, have been accustomed to the last 50 years or so. I um, think you even call like the 1800s one of the golden ages of negative campaigning. It absolutely was. It was, it was a golden age of negative campaigning. Um, and then I, I think I say also that, you know, some of the more recent campaigns uh, might enter that sort of fame also, sort of another golden age. Um, but yeah, if I was uh, going to rewrite the book now, now, now I have to rewrite the book. I mean, it's got to happen. Right? Now. You've got so much more After information. <laughs> you know, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was historically such a personally nasty campaign. You know, you usually don't have two candidates that are that personal. Um, they just, got, you know, usually you talk about policy and they may refer to somebody as soft on crime or, or soft on the Soviet Union or, you know, that sort of thing. But to just to launch in and call each other names and, and talk about each other the way they did in 2016 was historically bad. And so I would have to put that one in the book now. And I have a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> the way it's going. <laughs> might get there too. You know, I mean, we're not, we're not to November yet. So, um, you know, by the time November rolls around, this may be on the list too. So what are some of the things that are going on in the current presidential campaign that, that you consider really dirty tactics? Well, it's, it's really bad when they talk about each other's uh, personal characteristics. You know, that's normally what a lot of voters uh, recoil against. I mean, you know, voters understand that they're going to criticize each other and they're going to criticize each other's policies and their positions on issues. But when you talk about someone in a personal way, like they're a bad person, they're evil, they're a racist, uh, they're a criminal. Uh, and that's, that's been going both ways on the, in, you know, between the two parties. 
you know, that's when voters really find that distasteful and, and really recoil from that for good reason. So it's really, uh, I think, the personal, the, we, we've sunk to this level of personal animosity uh, in the last few years uh, that we, we normally are able to avoid that. Now, we've gone there a few times before. You know, there was, there was Bush and Dukakis in 88. Um, there was um, George W. Bush and John Kerry in 2004. Uh, they got really personal, but um, 2016 and 2020 are, are, are just uh, low points, I think. Yeah. And, and there's so many things that are happening now that are chances for people to really lay into each other. Just the pandemic. Um, now the post office, who knew the post office was going to become a, a political issue? Isn't that incredible? Uh, so, so now we're fighting over the post office. Uh, well, you know, this year we have fought over everything. I mean, this has been uh, one of the most uh, memorable, horrible years. Um, I mean, we started off with impeachment. Yeah. <laughs> and we go to a global pandemic. Uh, and then we go to, you know, these, these massive civil disturbances and, and riots. Uh, and now, you know, the post office. I mean, it's been one thing after another this year, really the whole four years when you think about it, um, that, you know, it, it, it just... You know, it has made people on both sides very sensitive and very defensive and very angry. And I got to tell you, as a college professor, I worry about these students who uh, don't feel like they can even talk about politics mm -hmm. or talk about issues uh, in the open because they're afraid. Um, and, and that's a sad state of affairs, I think. Yeah. Yeah, even the wearing a mask has become politicized. So, yeah, I think people are afraid of other people's reactions and they don't really want to talk about it. Um, I know one of the things that may be new, you can tell me if this is new because I've learned a lot about what's not new <laughs> from reading your book, but people are even um, worrying about that we might have a presidential, presidential election where the loser might refuse to concede. Is that new? Yeah. A new yeah, discussion? Uh... <laughs> You know, you don't hear that a lot. We haven't heard that a lot uh, <laughs> in this country. I mean, it's not something we've had to worry about really uh, since the Civil War. You know, that's probably the last time uh, that that kind of thing might have come up. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's born out of this 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 fear of the other side, um, and uh, it, it is an accusation that they're they're hurling against President Trump. You know, partly because he's talking about you know this election is going to be rigged. You know, if you let the this this massive mail-in balloting occur, but if you remember, he talked uh, about a rigged election in 2016, uh, and, and and so I think that's part of his uh, part of his shtick, you know, part of his uh, gaming is he talks about well, this election is going to be rigged, so you can't really trust the outcome, uh, and so the the other side, the Democrats, uh, particularly Speaker Pelosi you know, takes that to mean, well, he may not even leave the White House if he loses. We're going to have to use the, the, the army to get him out or something. Um, now, that's just, uh, that's just a, lot of, a lot of talk. I mean, I don't think anything like that's going to happen. Uh, but it tells you where we are uh, as a society that talk like that is even being taken seriously. Right. A lot of people do take it seriously. Yeah. And, you know, I read a, um, a quote in Politico that said, voters this fall will have to navigate a news and information environment so polluted that it could be an EPA Superfund site. And that yep. got me thinking about um, 
you know, how has the media and especially the rise of social media played into all this negativity and campaigns? You know, it definitely has. That's really interesting because with every era in our country's political history, the media, the mass media has played a significant role in that, uh, you know, back in the, the partisan press of the 1800s, for example. Um, then you get to the 20th century and the rise of radio and television, television advertising. So the media has been a, a dominant player in our politics and they, they have been, uh, the media has been a dominant issue in all of our elections. Um, and it, it seems in some ways that we're sort of getting back to the old days of the partisan press uh, where newspaper uh, reporters, columnists, broadcasters seem to be taking sides in these political disputes. I mean, it's not only Fox News versus CNN, but it's a lot of the mainstream broadcasters and other outlets uh, who seem to be advocating for one side or another. Um, and so that leads a lot of people to not wanna trust the media uh, as an objective source of information. It's made even worse, really, though, by, uh, you just mentioned the social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You know, those are such personal media um, because people can take part in that. Anybody can have a Twitter page. Anybody can make a Facebook post. Um, and these other sorts of social media are out there as well where, um, you know, people can really take part in these disputes and, and make their views known and respond to other people. Um, you know, I got to tell you, I, I have a Twitter page, but I try to stay away from it because it is so toxic oh. when it comes to politics. I mean, people just, uh, you know, resort to all kinds of innuendo and, you know, uh, bad faith and name calling. Um, and it seems like President Trump has used Twitter as a weapon. He's weaponized Twitter. And I understand that it's a political calculation that, that he's making, uh, but it also raises the bar, you know, because a lot of people respond to what he says, and that starts another round, you know, of responding and counter-responding, and, uh, you know, it just gets... Uh, it just gets unbearable at times. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I know everybody's pretty aware that people will say things on social media that they would never say in person or right. maybe even on traditional media. So that opens up a huge amount of negativity potential in a campaign. But, you know, social media has uh, democratized communications in a way where everybody can participate. Uh, but that can have a bad side too. <laughs> if everybody can say whatever they want to say, you know, that's, that's going to get out of hand. Yeah. So there's kind of pluses and minuses. And I know that um, President Trump makes no bones that he is not a fan of the media, the traditional media. Has that been a, a something that's we've encountered in the past or is that a new thing for a president to have a real antagonistic um, kind of antagonistic relationship with the press? Well, that's something else that really goes back to the founding of the country, uh, is, is presidents having an antagonistic relationship with the press. And we've seen that go through different phases. I mean, some obviously have a better relationship than others. You know, FDR, Roosevelt had a terrific relationship with the press. Uh, ironically, so did Ronald Reagan, uh, because he treated them, you know, so well, he gave them such, such access. Um, and so it's not unusual, though. It's very common, really, for particularly Republican presidents or Republican presidential candidates in the last several decades to run against the media 
You know, uh, in fact, when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was running in 92, I remember a bumper sticker that said, annoy the media, vote for Bush. That kind of uh, sentiment has been around for a while, but Trump is really the first president that has taken it to the next level where he actually calls the media the enemy of the people. Uh, and he will uh, do a press conference and I don't know if you've seen any of these press conferences. It's like a battle zone. You know, he, he right, he's standing right. up there and it's like Clint Eastwood, go ahead and make my day, you know, start a fight. Yeah. yeah. He seems to want that fight with the media. Definitely. It's it's a big show to watch some of the um you know, the press conferences they have nowadays. It's I think it used to be in the past kind of boring. Nowadays it might be a little interesting to see the the um, you know, just the animosity that's that's happening in those press conferences. It's amazing the the level of animosity. Um, but as I say, I I, I think that's uh, Trump probably thinks that's part of his strategy is that he's trying to make the press uh, appear to be antagonistic and against the interests of you know the common man and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people would say he's actually done a pretty good job of accomplishing that. If you look at the way this is going. Yeah. Interesting to see their, all their campaign tactics and all the things that have been done throughout history and we're experiencing more of the same. So do you have any last words of wisdom for us? Well, I just think that uh, I, I hope it comes to a, uh, a tipping point and I hope we can get back to a place where at least it's not as personal uh, and where people don't feel like it's okay just to say whatever they want about someone else, uh, regardless of the consequences. You know, that's, that's, I think that's the worst thing about our current state of affairs. Um, and I hope next year, maybe we can get back to a, you know, what uh, George Herbert Walker Bush called a kinder, gentler country. <laughs> yeah, I think we all, all could use a little of that right now. We could use a break. <laughs> we, we definitely could. No, no more disasters, no more negativity, you know, some positivity. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Kerwin. This was a very interesting look at elections throughout history and the contentious things that happen and hopefully a, a good hope for the future. Well, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thought Provoking is a production of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. You can follow our college on Facebook or Instagram at K-S-U-C-H-S-S or visit our website at chss.kennesaw.edu. This is Shelley Kaiser, and I'll be back next month with another episode. Talk to you then. Thank you.